I'm Andrew Bernard, and you're listening to East Storycast, histories of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who are there. I'm here today with Dr. John Holcomb. It's uh, October 23rd, 2019. We're at the Hyatt at the 30th Annual Kentucky Trauma Symposium in Lexington, Kentucky. Dr. Holcomb, thanks for taking a few minutes. It's great to be here. If we could start by you just uh, telling us about your training and how you get to where you currently are. So I trained uh, in a very old-fashioned general surgery program. No fellows. Um, We had three chief residents. We did everything. You know, and uh, everything was open. We did carotids, thoracotomies, open aortas, tons of general surgery. Good old days. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a great training. I graduated with about twelve hundred cases. You know, so it was uh, not horribly busy, but nor was it a, a quiet little program in El Paso, Texas. Uh, came out, I think, pretty well trained. The last six months, as I was telling your residents today, we started doing laparoscopic surgery the last six months. I did the first lap coli and lap api. In our hospital, we did the lap api with the rigid bronch instruments. It took three hours. Things have gotten a little bit better since then. Um, first lap coli was a lady with red hair, long red hair. I don't remember her name, but I saw her standing at the mirror, brushing her long red hair with her right hand uh, after her lap coli. And uh, that convinced me that there was something there as opposed to a coker. Um, And then went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I had been recruited into the Joint Special Operations Command. There's a medical unit there called the Joint Medical Augmentation Unit. And um, a group of surgeons, ER docs, CRNAs, uh, PAs, and medics that support Delta Rangers and SEALs. And so I had the best job in the world as a young surgeon. I operated eight to nine months of the year at a very busy community hospital, doing thoracotomies and aortas and carotids, uh, all the general surgery stuff you'd want. We started a laparoscopic program, and within two years, uh, we're doing lap appies, laparoscopic low interiors. I did a left upper lobe, thoracoscope. We did nissens and hernias, colons. You know, so in two years, my practice was 50% laparoscopic. And then the other uh, three or four months out of the year, deployed with JSOC, uh, supporting the best soldier, sailors, airmen in the world. And uh, so I was able to merge both of those. It was beautiful as a young surgeon. Uh, so busy clinically and busy from a military point of view. And, uh, you know, so that was the first two years. Graduated, graduated in 1991. And then uh, your question is, what, what about 1993 in Mogadishu, Somalia? So we were um, there supporting uh, a JSOC element that was going after Mohammed Farah Adid and uh, had done a number of these takedowns of his lieutenants and his infrastructure. And as everybody knows from the Black Hawk Down movie, you know, on one of the afternoons things went horribly wrong and helicopters got shot down. And in our uh, 50-bed hospital, combat support hospital, uh, where I was placed to augment the combat support hospitals there received uh, about a, over 100 casualties in about 36 hours. And um, 
we had uh, had one of our the Tenth Mountain soldiers had been eaten by a shark a couple of days earlier, and so David Elliott, who was the senior surgeon there, who had done a trauma fellowship at um, up in Baltimore, actually went and took the shark bite victim who lived uh, out of country, and so the senior surgeon left and left me and Tony Canfield as the two general surgeons, both of us right out of training. Two years out, and uh, and John Horchek, who was the orthopedic surgeon, so three surgeons. And, uh, you know, we just uh, triaged, took care of patients for the next 36 hours. It was, it was, it was an eye-opening experience. We, uh, first time I used, there were many things, you know, first time I'd used whole blood was then, and uh, Denver Perkins, who had been a uh, infantry officer in Vietnam and then went to anesthesia school, uh, became an anesthesiologist, was uh, our senior anesthesiologist. And in the midst of the Mascow, we were running out of plasma and had no platelets. And he said, why don't we draw whole blood? And we said, Denver, that sounds like a great idea. I've never heard of that. Nobody's ever talked about it. I know nothing about it. We're probably all going to go to jail, but guys are dying, and let's do whole blood. So a third of the hospital donated. Wow. Um, and you had no preset structure for this? No preset structure. None. No planning. Uh, totally made up in the midst of the Moscow, and um, and I, I don't you know we were operating so I don't know how Denver did that. Um, he uh, made it happen, um, and as many people have said that have talked about whole blood subsequently, and myself included, the uh, the coagulopathy associated with the resuscitation injury that we were generating at the time, given lots of crystalloid, and with hemorrhagic shock dried up when we gave whole blood. It was really something else. It was really something to see. In addition to a third of the hospital laying down, giving blood, standing back up, going back to work, um, and, uh, you know, without missing a beat, that was pretty impressive as well. That experience obviously didn't dissuade you from military service? So just the opposite. I had actually, um, I was telling one of your residents, I had actually was going to get out of the Army had two of the three signatures to get out. I had a contract and offer in hand from a small town in northwest New Mexico. Uh, I was going to be the fourth surgeon out of uh, three, joining a practice of three. Community hospital up in uh, the Four Corners area. And uh, that experience turned my whole life, you know, probably 180 degrees. I mean, I had a contract in hand, a salary negotiated. I'd already been for my second interview. And... Uh, decided to stay in the Army and work on stopping bleeding and resuscitation. Lucky for us. Ten years later, you're in Baghdad. So, uh, I, you know, and uh, had the opportunity to do a lot of work with hemorrhage control, tourniquets, whole blood, hemostatic dressings in the intervening time, and uh, had worked at Ben Taub uh, as uh, set up a trauma training program in the late 90s and uh, early 2000s where we rotated through forward surgery teams of Army, Navy, and Air Force. And then the war started. Um, we were actually at a uh, military conference at, uh, when the Twin Towers got hit and watched the second tower. Uh, the military conference dissipated pretty quickly and everybody went back to home base. And a couple years later, uh, was in Baghdad uh, in Iraq, uh, and about two months after the uh, forces crossed the berm, 
At that point, I had been promoted from a young major to a colonel over the ensuing decade and uh, was the trauma consultant for the Army. My orders from General Peake, who was the Surgeon General, was to travel north, south, east, and west, visit every place in the country, fix whatever I could as a colonel, and uh, identify problems that I couldn't fix and bring them back to him so he could fix them. That trip um, helped solidify the need for a joint trauma system and a joint trauma registry. Um, there was no data transferring, there was no data being recorded, there was no trauma registry, there was no trauma system. And uh, from that came you know, Don Jenkins and Brian Eastridge, and we were able to put together uh, a very nascent system, just sharing information between as the patients moved and then on up into Germany, and it's evolved quite a bit since then. But, uh, you know, General Peak is the guy who sent consultants into theater, much like consultants were sent in Vietnam and in World War II. He had read the history that, that we uh, didn't know at the time. But uh, consultants have done that, and their direct orders of a certain general travel around, meet people, talk, operate, spend a week or so at each place and operate with folks. And you got to be careful not to be the pro from Dover and come in and say, oh, you guys are all messed up, you know, I'm here for a couple hours, you're not doing it right, and move on, that doesn't go over well. Right. And so I had the opportunity to visit and stay and spend as much time as I needed to uh, share good information you know, share good things that are being done in one place with it, with other folks. That, was, uh, that remembering and building on prior knowledge acquired during military conflict, I know, is something that, that Matt Martin mm -hmm. talks about frequently. His um, sessions that he runs that are case records of the mm -hmm. joint uh, trauma system. system mm -hmm. um, intended to continue to remind us about what we've learned so that we don't forget. Well, it's, it's just like Denver talking about whole blood in, in Somalia, right? So um, whole blood's been, and now I, I like reading military medical history and I uh, should have read it when I was younger, but it's important. Whole blood's been used in every war we've been in since the Civil War. Like, that's just, you know, I mean, every time, every war we've been in, Civil War, and, and uh, whole blood's been used. And, and it's making a resurgence, as you know, today. Um, our physiology hasn't changed, wounding agents haven't changed. Uh, what changed was I think we got distracted by crystalloid and red cells for a while, and I think we're coming back now to using both whole blood and components. And I think that's a great message from the lesson. Just like tourniquets have transitioned, whole blood is transitioning. Um, I think those lessons are out there from military medicine. One of the most important changes we've made in the last two decades in how we resuscitate trauma victims is early high ratio plasma resuscitation. Mm -hmm. And I frequently use your papers published in 2007. 2007, uh, there had been some initial work on acute coagulopathy of trauma. Brohe had published some. You had clearly gained mm -hmm. early military experience because your group wrote a paper from your civilian center in early 2007 that said, we're not sure that the way we've been doing it is right. We probably need to do this earlier, and then followed up later that year with what I consider to be the landmark paper, the yeah. military experience. So nothing, nothing happens in isolation, right? So Somalia, we see whole blood, and we wrote about that, and um, it didn't quite. I, when I came back and talked about whole blood, both to the blood bankers, where I've spent a lot of time working with them over the years, and to the civilian uh, trauma community, people thought we were crazy. 
Uh, and a little bit's the way we presented it. When I was a young certain, and I spoke it as, of it as a religious experience. Not really scientific words, but it was. Uh, and it is, for the folks who've used warm, fresh, old blood. Um, General Peake asked me to assume command of the ISR. And um, I did that, and so I had the opportunity to work at the Institute of Surgical Research and work with physiologists who did animal research. And if you kind of go a little bit farther back, Jill Sandine and Mike Dubik, and we were able to do a number of animal studies looking at resuscitation, looking at blood products, looking at plasma, crystalloid. So that starts to take Mogadishu, then you take the animal work and resuscitation done. And then um, I spent two years at Kinematics' place running a trauma uh, uh, training program, Joint Trauma Training Center, Army, Navy, and Air Force, and of course got influenced with crystalloid and the discussions there with, with Ken. And then uh, you move forward and we start going over into theater and uh, watching and looking. And people go, well, why does the military experience, why do trauma innovations come out of the military experience? People ask all the time. I think, you know, all you do as a doc, as a surgeon, is you operate and you eat occasionally and you sleep occasionally and, and you do that seven days a week. That's all, and then you go work out. Those are the only four things you do. There are no distractions. I love my family to death, but there's no family. There's no bills, there's no meetings, there's no papers, there's nothing. And all your, everybody's 100% focus 24 seven is on those four things. And the most important are taking care of patients. That's it, everybody. And so there's no idle chat about the Astros or the rockets or whatever, it's talking about how could we have done it better for that soldier who died, you know, an hour or two ago or, or yesterday? And so I, I do think it's like this cauldron of everybody's desire to get better and everybody's giving their opinions freely. Uh, it's very different than, than working on the, on the civilian side. It's not better or worse, it's just different. And this idea of, you know, whole blood was difficult, but we had components. Um, the observations that the more plasma and platelets we gave, and the earlier we gave them, the better off the patients did, and the less crystalloid. You know, those those things were coming. Uh, they hadn't quite been crystallized. The uh, editorial that we wrote in 2007 was written in Baghdad, in the in between cases. And uh, what's interesting about that editorial, labeling something damage control resuscitation, I tell everybody it's got a lot of authors on it, has no data. It's all completely opinions. Um, the Borgman paper's first author uh, was a pediatric resident at the time. Yeah. And, you know, we put together those data from the 31st cash, 250 massive transfusions. Pretty important paper. Same year, same year uh, from Copenhagen, Par Johansson writes exactly, essentially the same paper in ruptured aneurysm patients. Whereas an anesthesiologist and a blood banker uh, anesthesiologist first, he became a blood banker. They changed the resuscitation paradigm in ruptured aneurysm patients. Didn't tell the surgeons, so the surgeons didn't know. They were just operating. Anesthesiologists were giving balanced resuscitation, and the patients did substantially better. So published in the same year in the journal Transfusion. And then and Parr has subsequently become a very uh, close collaborator, and we go visit him. He comes over to Houston. We published a bunch of papers together. But interesting that all of these data out there got two groups separately to come up to the same conclusion, do the same thing at the same time, and publish in the same year in two different journals. When that happens, you, you know it's real, I think. You uh, 
you're part blood banker. You're, you are uh, very uh, important uh, to uh, the AABB, and you're part of the AABB's leadership. Can you talk about the, the value that a surgeon brings to another organization when they bring that expertise? Well, and so uh, one of my close friends, uh, John Hess, is a blood banker. And uh, I met John uh, actually based upon work he did with a hemostatic dressing. Um, after Somalia, back to Somalia again, and I was trying to figure out better ways to stop bleeding. And I'd come to the conclusion we need a better dressing because gauze had been around for 5,000 years. And uh, in archives of surgery, John and John Hess and a vascular surgeon named John Bowersox, who was in the Army, published a paper on a fibrinogen-based dressing. Um, I read it on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock in bed and called this guy, Colonel John Hess, the next day. And uh, tracked him down. He was in the Army. We've become close friends and have published probably 100 papers together. But um, John, as a blood banker, had put fibrinogen on a piece of gauze and put it on a groin wound, and it was much better than gauze dressing. That's so, you know, that's how we met. And then he introduced me into the blood banking world, and, uh, you know, the blood bankers were a little reluctant to accept a surgeon in their midst, but they did, uh, because John said it was okay. And, uh, you know, I started learning about what they do for a living, what their issues are and what their problems are. And uh, they listened to what we needed, right? We need plasma. And, and when you call for it, you don't need to wait 45 minutes for it to thaw, um, which we did in Somalia. And a third of the bags broke because they were trying to thaw it too fast. That's a common problem. Most surgeons don't know that. Um, so John helped us to get, uh, get the blood bankers to start making this thing called thawed plasma. It's just plasma that's been thawed, and then you change the label, and it's good for five days rather than four hours, right? Uh, we implemented that in Baghdad based upon John's advice. And so we went back and talked about that with them. And then, you know, you bring them along, we need platelets first, and that's a problem for them, but they did it. And now they're supplying us whole blood, you know, with that relationship. Thank you for your innovation and what that's brought to us and to our patients. And thank you for your military service. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate you being here. Yeah. This concludes another episode of East StoryCast, histories of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who were there. Until next time, let's keep the conversation going.